Bruce Cook is honored to have you join his conversations with people committed to talking with heart and brain functions in full operating gear. No spin, no agenda, just authentic conversation on just about anything. Welcome to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Bruce talks with author Krista Bilton on her explosive memoir, Normal Family, a personal story growing up the daughter of a gay woman fathered by a donor who also donated to scores of other women producing at least 40 children. A story that's chilling, emotional, sad, and in the end, loving and eye-opening. The Bruce Cook Conversation with your host, Bruce Cook. Trending now, here's your host, Bruce Cook, brought to you by the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hode. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Bruce Cook. It's time for the conversation live tonight on Angels Radio, AM 830 KLAA. What would you do if you found out at a certain point in your life, especially if you happen to be young when you find this out, that your father was a sperm donor. What would you do? Who would you talk to? Who would you ask? And what would you do if you found out that that parent that gave you life also gave life to some 40 other human beings, possibly more? What would you do? How would you feel? Where would you go? My guest tonight is an author. She has written a memoir of her life. Her name is Krista Bilton, and you're going to meet her this hour, and you are going to be absolutely, totally, completely floored by her story. Her book, ladies and gentlemen, has gotten rave reviews. It is out. It is titled On Truth, Love, and How I Met My 35 Siblings, she has only met 35 of them, but there are more. It's titled Normal Family. So the big question this hour, in addition to what would you do if that happened to you, is what is a normal family? What is it? What is normal? What does normal mean? What did it ever mean? Wait until you find out what it means to Krista Bilton. Krista, welcome. Oh, thank you, Bruce, so much for having me. Nice to be here. Are you kidding? I am thrilled to have you. I I didn't know what to expect, Krista. I, Your book was recommended to me, and I should say to the listening audience, we don't know each other. We've never met. We don't really know much about each other, except I know a lot about you from reading your book. And I have to start by asking you, as I said in my intro, what would a normal, again, that, that word normal, I hate that word, but we're going to talk about that. What would you do, what would you do if you found out that you were the product of a sperm donor? And you know what? Before we get into the story and the reality and the book, I want to it was I was struck by this whole concept because I'd forgotten about it. Years ago, this was well known. Kids, men in college were donating sperm for money. And I think it was nobody really thought about the ramifications of it. But now you're a grown woman with a husband and two children. And you have 35 siblings that you invited over, that you found and invited to your home for a reunion. <laughs> What do people—is this legal anymore? Are people still doing this? That's my opening question. What do you know about that? Are people still going to sperm banks? Yes. I mean, there are all kinds of families that still need to use a sperm donor, whether they're gay families or single mothers by choice or um, heterosexual couples where, you know, the partner's in turtle. So there's still lots of reasons why people use and those reasons, uh, those reasons were the same for your mother, Deborah. And we'll get to that. But I guess my question is: Does this sound? Does it, it uh, the obvious benefits you've just stated? But what about the ethics of having thirty-five siblings and not knowing them, and and then finding them later in life? 
Yeah, I mean, so what what is crazy, I think, to, to your point, is that um, there is still no regulation um, over this industry. So you could still theoretically have these serial donors, like my father was, um, who, you know, in my father's case, he donated for almost a decade, up to three times a week, and he estimates somewhere in the 500 times range. Um and each of those donations was split into multiple sellable vials. So we, the truth is, we could have a whole lot more than forty siblings. In your um, book, in your book, you actually mentioned that you had a potential relationship with a young man who might have been a, a half brother. That's right. <laughs> that's but right. What about uh, the ethics? What about the what? You just you really hit it on the be, on the on the nail with there is no regulations and. And I got to tell you, that seems really wrong to me. It also, in your book, to get into the heart of the book, from the very beginning, when your mom, who was a lesbian and wanted to have children, found your father and chose him to be the sperm donor, she made an agreement with him, which he signed and agreed to. And you talk about that extensively in the book, which he broke. Talk about that. Yeah, that's right. So my mother... She, as, as you said, she didn't go the traditional route. I mean, it was the very early 80s, and, um, you know, sperm banks were just in the very start of, of being a thing. And at that time, my mother didn't know even a single person in her gay community who had had kids. So she was very much a trailblazer when she decided to set out to have a child um, on her own as a gay woman. And... Uh, and so she she didn't go the the sperm the sperm bank route. She went on a manhunt, and my very handsome, dapper, put together father um, walked into a Beverly Hills salon, and my mother took one look at him, and she thought that's that's it, that's him, that's the one. And she took him to lunch and convinced him to give his sperm to her for two thousand dollars, which was you know, a lot more than he wound up making at the at the sperm bank per donation. Um, and the caveat was that he could never do it for anyone else unless it was, you know, in, in the context of having his own family one day. So he wasn't exactly, it's not that women were coming up to him all the time trying to have, you know, trying to pay him to, to father children. So he, he laughed when she she made him swear uh, and, and said, sure, what, of course, of course I won't do this for anyone else. Um and shortly thereafter, my mother took him to the California cryobank to be tested for STDs. And that's when my father saw this lineup of men making regular donations. And it occurred to him why she had made him swear to it before taking him there. But he didn't live up to it. And that's what really bugs me uh, for you. But you've come to terms with that over your, you know, your very young, your short lifetime more so than most people would, Krista. Most people, I think, would resent this man for what he did. And also the fact, and this is what's so fascinating, ladies and gentlemen, why you've got to get this book and read Normal Family. This is really a family saga story of coming to terms with loving who you are, regardless of where you come from, regardless of your faults, regardless of the missteps that you make. Your father, who you use the name Jeffrey, and I believe that is his real first name, mm -hmm. was really a cad. I mean, he was a scoundrel. Um, I mean, horrible. He did horrible things. But you have obviously, for whatever reason, chosen to embrace him as he is. Can you talk about that? And how did you, how did you get to that point? You know, I think one of the things that I found so fascinating about publishing this book is that everyone who reads it comes away with completely different impressions of my parents. Um, so, as you said, you know, some some people think, you know, think, oh my God, these two, these two mentally ill, terrible—they were the worst parents. Like, you know, how did you survive? And then, and then other people are like, you had the most colorful, incredible parents. What a gift they were to you. So. You know, that, that's been fascinating to me how much people just um, take different things away. Uh, you know, I, I tr but I did, I did try and be compassionate t towards my parents. I, I didn't always have that view. Um, 
you know, more than my dad. My mother is, is a real main yeah, wait, character. In the wait world. till we get to her. I really want to talk about Deborah. All right, I'll, but I'll let's stay with her, but... let's stay with Jeffrey. Okay. Um, but you know, the thing is, she didn't know this man. He was a stranger that um, that she, you know, he agreed to do this, and then she had bigger plans for him than he realized, and. Not only did she want him to give her sperm with this promise, but in truth, she wanted him to play a father role in my life. And so I think that my mother has this larger-than-life willpower where she just convinces people to do her bidding. And I think that's a little bit of what happened with my dad. And I call him my dad, not my donor, because I did wind up having him uh, in my life. And it was only upon learning about the siblings that I started to unravel the truth of the whole situation. But you had him in, Krista, you had him in your life also because your mother kept paying him to be in your life. He was paid right. to come to your birthday party. He was paid to visit you at school. He didn't really want to do that during those years, but he did it for some reason. Maybe it's because, as you said, your mother, Deborah was a very strong and powerful, convincing person. But you didn't know that as a kid. You When did that all come to be in in perspective? Yeah, so so in my mid-20s, my mother, you know, which I document this, this moment in the book, my mother sits me and my little sister. So I have one full sister who I grew up with. Who um, is also his daughter, correct? That's, yes, that's yeah. correct. Caitlin, so my mother Caitlin. Sister, Caitlin. Mm -hmm. So my mother sits us down and she said, uh, and you know, the way she discovered this is a whole other story and I'll save it for the book. But my mother sits us down and she says, you know, after you guys were born, your father turned to sperm donation. And it turned out, you know, you, you might have a couple, she used the word couple, brothers and sisters out there in addition to you guys. And the way that my mother delivered this news and the way she said a couple made me realize that the number could be far larger than that. And then, you know, the the tipping point was she said, and I think you're dating one of them. Um, so that was, that was a tough one. That's tough a shocker. Swallow. Yeah, right. Um, but I, that was the beginning of me realizing that a lot of what I've been told about my conception and my parents was not true. And that, you know, in many ways the book is, it reads like a mystery, um, which is sort of parallel to to how I to my own experience of it. Because a lot of you know, my mom had all of this really intense shame, which I then inherited and and had to deal with myself about her sexuality as a gay woman and about raising a family in this different way. And so to cover up that shame, she was always telling us um, lies about what was really going on and. You know, also she was a drug addict and an alcoholic and all this other stuff. But um, so it was actually in reporting the book that I started to realize a lot of this stuff. It was, you know, it was in a conversation I had when I was asking my father questions for some early chapters that he said to me, well, you know, your mom used to pay me to come over. And um, so so I'm still, I guess, I, you know, th th those realizations are still quite fresh. I'm sure they are. The um, The thing, though, that was quite moving was the fact that despite the fact that your father and you do you do profess to be close to him in your own way was chasing chasing windmills all through his life mm -hmm. you know he, he you detail somewhat in the book that in the end he runs off to india in search of the greater truth and i want to really get into that with your mom as our as our conversation continues but it seems to me that from the very beginning and this what is so great about the way you tell the story is that these two people Deborah and Jeffrey both found each other in a time and place in Los Angeles that would not exist anywhere else in this country anywhere at any time people that know LA and the lifestyle and the culture of L.A., and especially in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, even beginning in the 60s, it's a Wild West place. And people came here from everywhere to follow a dream. And Jeffrey came here to follow a dream. I think it wasn't really explicit in the story, but 
it sounds like he came here to find fame and fortune and acting didn't really happen. A, a million stories like that in the in the city of Los Angeles. And your mom, who I believe was raised here, she also was so so much a product of that time and place and the journey of searching for the greatest experience, the most interesting places to go, the most interesting people, the truth, as you said in your in your title, the truth in life, finding the truth. And neither one neither one ever found it. <laughs> but you yeah. you did. How is that possible? Well, I don't I don't profess to be some kind of prophet. Um, I, I hope to just tell a really good story with this book. But, well, you um, did that, but you also found the truth. Yeah, I mean, you—I don't know about that. That's very sweet and kind to say. But um, I i think you hit the nail on the head that, you know, in addition to just being this, this in, insane big family saga of a story, it's also a story about this very unique place and time and some really unique characters that came out of that time. And, um, and, and I'm so glad that 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 came through for you because it, it was this very special moment and, and, I, and my parents perfectly came from it. Yeah. I want to follow that further. We got to take our first break, Krista. Uh, we're going to follow that lead further because in the truth, there's a lot of bull also. There's a lot of fantasy and a lot of craziness and it's pretty fascinating. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook. Tonight, the conversation with author Krista Bilton the book, Normal Family. We'll be right back. Angels Radio. AMA 30. At the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, the Hoag Epilepsy Program is accredited by the National Association of Epilepsy Centers as a Level 4 Epilepsy Center. This means that our experts provide the highest level care for patients with complex epilepsy. Our patient-centered approach to epilepsy treatment combined with state-of-the-art technology, including robotics and laser ablation, ensure the best possible outcomes for our patients. To learn more or for an evaluation, call 949-966-0243 or visit hoag.org forward slash epilepsy care. We are back. I'm Bruce Cook. It's the conversation tonight. Live, Angels Radio, AM 830. Author Krista Bilton. We're talking about her book, Normal Family. You know, Krista, that uh, song that played us in back to our show together, uh, Little Nas X, uh, I Want Someone to Love Me. I don't know. The board op picked that song for me, but you know what? It hits the nail on the head about this book and what I thought about it. It's all about finding someone to love you, finding someone to love me, finding to love your mom, Deborah, and your father. It's all, it's really a love story. Let's start at the beginning, back uh, a little bit of what we've discussed already. Your mom grew up in LA. She knew she was gay at a young age. She felt very, very separated and, and uh, at odds because of it. Is that, do you think that's the core of the angst that has gone through her entire life story with the searching for the truth and for finding the love? Is that the core of it or is there more? I, that's, I think that is one piece of it. And I think the other piece of it was um, her father's alcoholism and a sort of family tragedy that I don't, you know, I don't want to spoil it for the book, but um Something that happened with him, uh, I think, was was the other core trauma for her. So I think those two combined um, led to some some later difficulties. You you don't talk much about your grandmother, though. Is there a reason? Oh, that's so interesting. Um, well, I never met either of my grandparents. You know, they both they both passed away due due to addiction, um, but. 
my mother describes her own mother, you know, I, I guess that's, that's a good point. I, she talks more about her dad and the love that she had with her dad. And when she talks about her mother, it's more describing her as the sort of cold, unloving woman, which was the opposite of what my mom was as, as a mom. Um, so I'm sure both of those uh, had a huge impact. I brought that up. I brought that up because a number, many years ago, many years ago, I was asked to co-write a book called uh, Once More with Feeling, which was a follow-up to uh, a book that was a expose that was a bestseller called You'll Never Make Love in This Town Again. It was a Hollywood story, um, and it was about women um, that had come to Los Angeles in search of their fame and their fortune to find their place in Hollywood. And the underlying theme in the book was that all of these women had very, very distant relations with their own mom, that their mothers were cold and distant, and, and because of that, their lives were fractured. And I kept waiting for to learn more about Deborah's mom, and I didn't. And I kept thinking, this is the same thing. Mm. I might be crazy, and I shouldn't be. I mean, this is ridiculous for me. <laughs> to be, I'm going too far, but it just hit me. And uh, I wondered about it. That's why I asked you. Um, yeah. No, No. I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, my mother didn't. She, she sugarcoated a lot of her... She had a rough upbringing, but when, but growing up, I, I didn't know that. Um, I only heard sort of the glossy stories about how we'd had a, you know, her grandfather had been governor of California and her father had been a prominent judge, but, um, and all of that was well and good, but, um, but her dad had been broken by the war. He had gone to fight and come back with pretty heavy PTSD and her mother, I think that she had been, you know, at that time, women were expected to be housewives. And um, I, I think that she just wasn't a natural mother. I don't think it fulfilled her in a deep way. And so I think both parents, it just wasn't, it was a much darker and more difficult childhood than I realized my mother had. But, but I didn't your, realize that. But your mother desperately wanted you and your sister. Desperately, yeah. And I love the part of the book that talked about her trying to go straight to find a husband and be the perfect wife and get pregnant. And she had a, a long-term relationship with a man and was never able to get pregnant. But she had to have that child. She would do anything to have you. And you know what? That must be why you're so good and so okay with all of this. Because despite mm -hmm. all of the ups and downs that you talk in this journey, which is why you have to read this book. To, you will not believe the stories, and I'm not going to give them away. Um, any other child who didn't have that undying, absolute love of the parent would not have turned out healthy. Hmm. Yeah, I, I do. I think that um, I think the greatest gift that parents can give their children is making the kids feel that they're wanted and as much as my mom, uh, you know, struggled to keep us going throughout the years and, and had her own demons and addictions, I think that there was never any doubt uh, how much she wanted or, or loved me and my sister. So I, I do feel that I'm very lucky for that. And, you know, to bring it back to all of the biological siblings, I think that of all the all the traits we share in common, we, that's one thing that, that, that we all share as well. We all had a parent who wanted us so badly that they they went through this non-traditional route you know at that time it was especially uh, uncommon uh, since you brought up that which i wanted to save for later but oh, ta talk about that's okay talk about bringing these siblings together how did you do it and i'm sure it had to be very stressful and also quite rewarding but maybe you could share the scene in the book where they're all at your house. Yeah, sure. So, so the book opens up with a prologue um, where I'm standing uh, at my front door and my door keeps ringing. And every time I open the door, there's a new 
biological sibling who I've never met before. And I'm greeting them, and then they're going into the house, and then I hear in the background all of them laughing, and it's a pretty unsettling moment because we all have the same laugh. And um, and then they're all standing in a circle looking at their toes because we all have the same toes. And so, so that's the beginning of the book. And then... And then my my sister, my full sister, who I grew up with, comes to the front door and she's having a panic attack and she doesn't understand why I invited this larger biological family over to my house. Uh, And and we have a a little argument about it that's quite comical, I think, in in retrospect. And and that's the beginning. And then I go back in time to to how I got there. Um, And, oh, sorry, go ahead. Were all of these... Uh, siblings local were they all from the Southern California, or did they did you find them elsewhere and they came came to see you? No, and most the, of them flew in from from other parts of the country. So the, um, the follow up is: Have you kept in touch I with have, any of you them? Know, we, <laughs> I have um, my you know in the very beginning we kept in touch on Facebook and then we would have individual relationships, you know, with, with ones that you really connected to. And then Facebook moved to WhatsApp and then WhatsApp became overwhelming. Once we got to like 25 or so siblings, it was just, I'd open the app and there would be thousands of messages and I'd have no idea what we were talking about. And so then we ultimately moved to an app called discord where you can organize uh, different conversations by theme uh, so that's that's where we are now, and and um, and I'm very close with a few of them, and, and it's it's wound up being a really rich uh, and meaningful part of my life. But but it took me a long time to get there. When my mother sat me and my sister down to tell us about the siblings, um, I wanted nothing nothing to do with any of them, and I didn't think that their that biology was meaningful in any in any real way. And uh, it took me almost ten years before before I opened up to, to the... Was there one the thing that changed your mind? There was one moment, one moment of epiphany, as they say, that brought you the light to accept this? Yes. The, the, the moment, you know, it's a story I talk about in the book where um, I, through, a, through a, an absolutely extraordinary set of coincidences, I am put in touch with one of the siblings, uh, a sister named Jennifer, and I went to a very small and not well-known art school um, in Italy for a type of painting that no one's really interested in these days, you know, Renaissance painting. It's not exactly in vogue or a very smart career path. Um, and one of my sisters went there uh, the year after I left, who had grown up in upstate New York in a very different family. And that was just so bizarre and strange that I, I decided, okay, I can have a relationship with this one person. So interesting. And so interesting. It is. It's a really interesting, you know, one of the big themes in the book is nature nurture. And I think, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s when, when most people thought that nurture was everything. And I think we're coming around to realizing nature is also quite profound. And, um, of course, it's both. It's not one or the other, but meeting the half-siblings and, and sharing so many traits in common with them, all of whom grew up in, in different parts of the country with different family units that were completely, you know, contrasted to mine. Um, it definitely made me give more weight to biology than I did before. So that's a really interesting topic in the book, I think. Very, but, um, very, very much so. Time for the second break. I can't believe it. We have so much to talk about. You know, these commercials are really getting in the way. Krista, <laughs> Krista Bilton, thank you so much. We are going to take the second break. When we come back, I want to talk about Annie. Ladies and gentlemen, wait till you hear about Annie and some of the other characters. Again, it's Bruce Cook, conversation with author Krista uh, Bilton, the book Normal Family. Stay with me. There's always tomorrow. Angels Radio. AM 830. Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue is ranked in the top 1% in the nation by U.S. News and World Report. 
It provides world-class care through multidisciplinary expert teams, each focusing on specific disorders of the brain and spine, such as stroke, aneurysms, brain tumors, Parkinson's disease, cognitive disorders, including Alzheimer's, epilepsy, back pain, as well as spinal cord issues, addiction medicine, and sleep disorders. Our renowned experts offer the best evidence-based care, state-of-the-art technology, and the latest clinical research, all focused on the individual patient. Our stroke program was the first in Orange County named as a certified comprehensive stroke center, and our brain tumor program is the largest in Orange County and among the top volume programs in the Western United States. Hiccup Family Neurosciences Institute, compassionate care, clinical excellence, creative intelligence. To learn more, call 949-516-9075 or visit hogue.org forward slash neuroinstitute. Asking for help in life takes bravery. Women addicted to alcohol and drugs know this very well. Most suffer silently while their lives fall apart, their children and their families in crisis. For more than 40 years in Southern California, New Directions for Women has helped addicted women recover in a nationally recognized treatment facility in Costa Mesa. Their doors are wide open. It just takes the first step. Call New Directions for Women. The number is 888-786-0509. Again, 888-786-0509. You can also visit them at www.newdirectionsforwomen.org. New Directions for Women. They know recovery. Let's your dad's type I'm the bad guy. Duh. We're back. I'm Bruce Cook. It's the conversation tonight, live on Angels Radio. My very special guest, author Krista Bilton, tonight. Her book, Normal Family. Krista, we went to break, and I brought up the subject of Annie. Your mom mm -hmm. talks, and you talk in the book, actually, in a very, very very sensitive manner about the many women in your mom's life through your childhood, how they were parents just like your mother. One in particular was a woman named Annie. Could you share a bit of that with the listening audience? Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, a bigger theme in the book is just this idea of what is a family, because that's you know, as you said, growing up, um, I had many different family units because every few years my mom would get into a different relationship with a woman who would come and play the role of sort of second mommy uh, for several years. And then and then she'd disappear and we would never see her again. But um, but the first of those was a woman named Ann Weldon, who I'm, I'm grateful to say is still in my life today. Um she was a, a black singer who was 20 years older than my mom, um, who was an extraordinary woman. Um, she, I think she was the first lead black lead actress in the American Conservatory Theater to, to hold. Uh, she opened for Dinah Washington. She was, she, everyone should look up Ann Weldon, um, find her singing online because she's incredible. But she was the first of my many second mothers. And when my mom was pregnant with me, she and Annie were together. And for my first three, two years of life, maybe a little bit more, um, I knew Annie as my, she called herself my black mama. Um, so, so yeah. And then they, they split up over, which was, you know, over money stuff, which is, usually what led to the downfall of my mom's relationship. And um, and then there were several women after that, but I'm happy to say that today I, I still see Annie quite often. Um, she's in her late 80s, which is amazing. And, um, and yeah. Let me read uh, a couple of sentences from the book about Annie. Annie had begun referring to herself as my black mama, she would throw me over her shoulder while she was on a conference call, pat me on the back with a tight squeeze and announce, you may not have come out of my womb, child, but you sure as hell came out of my heart. 
That's the kind of sentiment that this book has. Money's a great topic also. It's also a theme. Your mom and your dad and all the character in this, characters in this book and in Los Angeles at the time talk about ups and downs financially. And also yeah. what's interesting, the way you describe your mother had a very much, had very, or has very much a uh, an attraction to the finer things in life. You know, she wanted beautiful things, beautiful clothes. She wanted to drive a fancy car. She wanted all these great things. But at the same time, she was not stable in terms of her approach. She wanted to fly off to meet the Maharinsis or the Maharaja or, or walk or walk down the steps of Jerusalem with the steps of Jesus. And then, as you put in the book, the next week she goes and spends a week in a kibbutz. She was a searcher who wanted to dress in Chanel and drive a Jaguar. How do you put that together? <laughs> well, I guess she found the perfect outlet for that in, in Bhagwan Rajneesh, uh, later known as Osho, which was one of the, the many cults my mother spearheaded um, through the 70s and 80s. But but as you said, she she also loved money and she wanted to live this bigger life. And... Um, but I think that she had a she had a precarious relationship with with finances. She want, she both loved and hated money. And she, you know, growing up, she would spend money when she made it through these wild pyramid schemes and multi level marketing scams. Um, you know, at, at times growing up, we would have lots of money, and she spent it as quickly as she made it. She called money energy, and uh, energy is not meant to be saved; it's meant to be spent. She would say, and and so. We went from living in giant mansions to being, you know, in a halfway house on food stamps and, and back and forth uh, several times. And um, what and do you so, remember about the best of times and what do you remember about the worst? The best of times was living. There were two best of times. Uh, one of them was. Well, best of times financially, because I wouldn't necessarily classify that as, as best of times emotionally for me. Yeah, they don't uh, necessarily go together. So give me what you can. <laughs> Financially, <laughs> we, we were once living in a many multi, you know, it would now be worth the tens of millions, but at the time it was low, low millions house in Hidden Hills um, with my mom and a se another second mom named Mommy Faye with her three children. And we had a giant swimming pool and we had all kinds of exotic animals because that's where my mother loved to spend her money the most. So uh, we, we pretty much had a zoo at that house. Um, and, you know, but the best of times emotionally, I would say was a pretty modest time right after that period, after we she'd gone through bankruptcy and um, met another woman named Sable and my mom had gotten sober. She'd stopped drinking after some crazy times. And, uh, and a few years when when she was sober and when she was with this woman named Sable um, in this in the small house in the valley uh, were definitely the happiest times in my childhood. Boy, and and you're very happy now. I understand, which is really a blessing. Talk about your life now. Yeah, I'm. I'm. You know, after I, I struggled, I think that we often pick up the patterns of our parents, and I had a lot of. I had a lot of dysfunctional lessons I'd learned growing up that I carried into my young adulthood. But um, one being that I was often attracted to really toxic relationships or with abusive people. And, I wonder where that came from. <laughs> um, I, either abusive people or people who had really severe addictions. And um, I'm happy to say that I worked through that and I, I met someone uh, who doesn't have any of those issues, who's really a lovely, like a, a warm and kind and stable partner. And we have two little kids and, and my mom is still, you know, actively in my life. But, you know, she sometimes has Freudian slips and calls me mom. And uh, I think that's, that's an apt title because. You know, I, I was my mother's parent from very early on, and uh, and I I still have that relationship to her, but but things are good now. Clearly, clearly so. <clears throat> I want to know why you named your two kids after famous authors of another century. <laughs> 
And uh, I won't say their names because I'm going to keep them private. But uh, very unusual choices. What is the what's the uh, literary connection, and is that your ambition now that you have have written this wonderful, interesting, unbelievable memoir? What's next for you? Um, you know, I didn't mean to pick a theme for my kids' names. It, it, the first one was just because I loved the sound of the word, and um, and it did just so happen to be my favorite writer. And then the second one, we just had a long list of names, none of which were literary except for one. And in the birthing room, we just couldn't pick, and, and that was the, the second. So it had more to do with the the, 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 the sound of the names than, than, than having any, to be Than anything uh, spiritual, because... Again, another theme of this book has so many themes. You mentioned one that I haven't even brought up, and that's there are so many animals in this book. It is hard to keep track. Yeah, I mean, we had potbelly pigs, we had chinchillas, we had iguanas, you know, uh, my mother bred finches. We, I had a giant dove cage that was life size that I would spend many hours in. So, do you think that uh, this could be? When people are, quote-unquote, searching for a greater spiritual reality, a greater truth, some understanding of themselves, a connection to the physical universe, to creatures, is a common thing, I think. Mm. Yeah, and it's a theme, you know, even when my, you know, my dad, I don't know if we've covered this, but he wound up for most of his life being homeless and... Um, we're living in his car and uh, most of his relationships now are with the animal world. So he, he's nocturnal. He, he doesn't, he sleeps during the day and he's awake at night and he spends his evenings rescuing stray animals. And, uh, and with the exception of me and a, and a couple other people he still speaks to, it's, it's mostly who he interacts with. So I, I do think that there's, Maybe there's a lost connection to the natural world, and, and people are struggling with that. And, and so maybe that's something my parents were trying to do with all the animals. It's 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 very sad what you describe about your father. It's very very sad, um, but it's not all that uncommon, I'm afraid. And mm -hmm. um, from for those listening that are going to want to read this book, you will find the the journey that this man has taken from being you know, the, the godlike, handsome guy that walked into the salon as a young man to the, I'm not going to say what they are, but all the different jobs that he did that would be less than what you might call substantial or, or um, substantial is the wrong word, less than respectful. Um, in a wandering sort of haphazard, crazy way, including fathering all of these children through collecting money uh, from donating his DNA, it's just it's just the story of a lost soul. And um, in a way, many of the characters in your book are the story of lost souls, but they all seem to survive in spite of everything. And that's mm -hmm. something that's unique about your story because any any other story being told like this always has an unhappy ending and you don't do you can you mm -hmm. say anything more i mean we've sort of covered it but why do you think you don't have an unhappy ending <laughs> um you know i i think that i think we have so many more resources available today to deal with things like mental health or intergenerational trauma or um, addiction, uh, you know, all, you know, all things that I had to work through myself, I wasn't uh, unscathed by those things. And, um, and I'm very lucky. I think that, you know, back to an earlier question, like I, I love memoir as a genre of book. And I think that one thing that I've gotten from some of the great memoirs that I've read is, is hope. Um, cause often I read, you know, like I read the glass castle at a, at a very hard time in my life when I was living sort of a fraudulent existence because I was filled with so much shame about how different my family was from all the other families around me. Um, you know, I was comparing my inside to people's outsides and what I assumed their lives were like. Um, and I think reading that book 
made me realize that there were other people out there who had been through similar struggles and who had somehow overcome them. And I just think that giving people that hope is important. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a true story. So it is a happy ending, but that was also important to me because, um, because that so many people as extraordinary and bizarre as this story is, I think there are a lot of themes that are not that unique. Um, and that people relate to. Our last break, Krista, we have to take. When we come back, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, fascinating, sensible, sensitive, um, interesting, so many adjectives uh, applied to this story. Ladies and gentlemen, again, I'm Bruce Cook. It's The Conversation with author Krista Bilton. Another quick break. We'll be right back with a few gems to end our time together. As part of the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, Hoag's Neurospine program offers innovative methods to reduce pain, inflammation, and improve mobility safely and effectively, often without surgery. Should you need surgery, Hoag is a leader with minimally invasive techniques, 3D imaging, and robotics to restore your golf swing or your swing dance. Many of our patients go home in just a few hours, walking the very next day. Call our dedicated nurse navigator at 949 549- 537-2931 for an evaluation or visit hoag.org forward slash sign help. And we are back, everybody. I'm Bruce Cook. Angels Radio, AMA 30. Conversation tonight, author Krista Bilton, the book Normal Family. In the end, Krista, I believe your mom is a very happy grandma, and uh, this is also part of the happy ending. Would you share, without giving away sort of the ending of your book, some of the emotion and some of the togetherness and some of the spiritual message that comes from having lived a very wild and crazy life, but in the end, having kind of a regular, normal everyday family. That's right. Well, um, you know, I think I titled it normal family to be ironic because there was nothing quote unquote normal about my family. And I wouldn't say, you know, even though the situation now with my husband and kids is, is more stereotypical. Um, my mom is still actively in our lives and, and my kids have all these biological aunts and uncles. And so as soon as you, zoom out it's it's still a pretty unusual family but um but it's a functional one where there's a lot of love and um you know healing that has taken place and and hopefully you know we've broken a lot of cycles um you know i stopped drinking i um i'm I'm, i've worked through a lot of the stuff from my my complex childhood and uh yeah i'm just i'm i'm excited to have written this book and and to share it with all of you and and it's also just a really fun story, so I hope people have fun with it as well. But um, I think the the final message is just that love is the most important thing, and, and you can get through all the other stuff that's out there. That is the message. It is absolutely the message. And uh, I think, in your words, put into your mom's uh, dialogue in the book, um, all the searching, all of the spiritual uh looking for truth as, and 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 not really discovering it after a lifetime of going everywhere and meeting everyone and asking every question the truth really comes down to nobody really knows and your mom gets it later in life and what really matters is you your husband your kids your sister, I suppose, although I don't know. And uh, as you said, the rest of this very, very unusual extended family. I thank you so much for your time. Um, I enjoyed reading the book very much. It's very well written. I encourage my listeners to pick it up, 
Normal Family, everybody. It's online everywhere. It's on bookstores everywhere. Krista, how would you like to have the last word here? Oh, I'm just I'm just so grateful to be here. And um, yeah, one of the one of the great joys of writing this book has been hearing from readers. So uh, so if you read the book, come come find me on on Instagram or Twitter and send me a note because that's been that's been the most fun of this whole process is hearing how people related to the story. And again, what's your next book? Oh, I don't know. I'm still working on that. And this one took me so long to write. I'm just, I'm just raveling in it being done at this moment. Isn't that an amazing, (laughs) it's an amazing, uh, amazing thing to finish a book when you've worked on it for so long. It is. It, It feels like a real completion. Um, and that was hard for me. I, I've been writing it for, or trying to write it for a really long time. So, was there? Yeah, any, I'm, I'm really proud of it. <laughs> was there any um, any pushback along the way? Oh, from my family. Yeah, Lots they didn't want you to write it, or <laughs> uh, my mom. I had to work through a lot of stuff with my mother to be comfortable with me telling the story, but. Um, the surprising things were the things that she took issue with. So she, she really had no problem telling the story of her various drug addictions, for example, um, or the, all of the, the money stuff, which uh, was very up and down, as you said. But she, she, had a, she became hysterical over the fact that I used the word pudgy to describe her dog. See, there you uh, go. There you go. <laughs> we we had to have many therapy sessions over that single word. And so. <laughs> that's and that's and pudgy is how we're going to end our conversation tonight. All the best to you, Krista Bilton. All the best. Uh, everybody, check out Normal Family. It's been a great conversation, ladies and gentlemen. Sure, thank, list, you. thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for me to say good night. As I close every week, stay healthy, be good to each other. Come back again next Sunday night at 6 o'clock for the conversation. And again, thank you, Krista. Thank you so much, and good night. You've been listening to The Bruce Cook Conversation. Hear The Bruce Cook Conversation on Sundays at 6 p.m. Pacific on AM830 KLAA. And hear the podcasts of every show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. <laughs>